Thank you, men. Uh, reminding all of us that in Christ alone our hope is found, right? It's the only place there is any hope. I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 28. We're going to witness now what I spoke about earlier, Christ's transfiguration. Folks, this is one of those passages that just makes you wonder if you can adequately represent it. It just provides an astonishing unveiling of the deity and the glory of Christ. Uh, Let me start just by reading it to you in verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, of course that's referring to Peter's confession and, and Jesus' command to take up your cross and follow him. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Well, first and foremost, we know that this event characterizes the image of Christ's second coming. We know that because when you look back at verses 26 and 27, uh, it tells us so. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of God's kingdom, an, an early taste of God's kingdom. In fact, Christ even promises in verse 27, if you look back there, that some of the disciples that were with him would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That promise is fulfilled here, Luke tells us, some eight days later. Jesus doesn't suggest here that some of the apostles will live 2,000 plus years until the eternal state or the kingdom of God comes, nor does he suggest that the kingdom of God was fully established somehow in the first century church. No, today Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and his kingdom will be established, verse 26, when he returns in glory. So what the three apostles receive is a glimpse into that future kingdom. It all happened when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on what Mark 9 verse 2 describes as a high mountain to pray. This may be Mount Hermon. That would be located very close to Caesarea Philippi where Peter had just confessed Jesus as the Christ the Son of the living God, that rises to well over 9,000 feet, about 9,200 feet. So if you include the day of Peter's confession 
um, Jesus' instructions at the beginning of this period. Um, then if you also include a day's hike at the end, it probably took to get to the top of this mountain or to the summit. Uh, you can understand why Luke measures the period as eight days. Well, Matthew and Mark say the period was six days. It's not a contradiction in the Bible, as some might suggest. It's simply because Matthew and Mark count the days in between, where Luke is adding the day at the beginning and the day at the end. Uh, Peter, James, and John become the sum, from verse 26, who get to witness, they get to see a glimpse of the kingdom. They get to see the kingdom of God. They didn't enter the kingdom, but they got to observe features of, of the kingdom, the focus of which we will see is the glory of Jesus Christ. When the eternal state comes, Christ will be displayed in a radiant glory. It's likely describing this, this fantastic event. Uh, later, the Apostle John would write, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you hadn't previously noticed, you you might now start to see that these three men, Peter, James, and John, are beginning to form Jesus' inner circle. They are the most oft mentioned of the twelve apostles. They get invited places the others don't. They they in the last chapter, Luke says that they got to see. Uh, Jairus' daughter be raised from the dead. They were the only ones allowed in with the parents of the daughter. They will later become the only ones who get to accompany Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. The fact is, folks, Jesus had favorites. I love that about Jesus. In his humanity, in his humanity, uh, he had to spend more time with some than with others. The twelve didn't all just get a participation ribbon at the end, a, commend, a commendation for being themselves. No, a few of Jesus' di- disciples somehow excelled. They excelled. We, we don't know exactly why Jesus separated out these three. They are portrayed in Scripture as being more inquisitive with Jesus. They're more bold in their proclamation, and they're more willing to accept a level of risk when associated to taking chances. And these three leaders then, Peter, James, and John, also became the earliest leaders of the church. You have Andrew, who followed close behind them. He was in the picture quite often. Then you get the middle of the pack guys. You know, you got Philip and Bartholomew, uh, Matthew, Levi the tax collector, uh, Doubting Thomas was a middle of the pack guy. And then you kind of got the caboose. Those who come up at the end, they rarely get mentioned in Scripture. You have James the Less. How would you like your name to be the Less? James the Less. Uh, Judas, son of James. Uh, Thaddeus. Finally, the traitor Judas Iscariot. Almost always mentioned last. Um, What I'd like to underscore is just the fact that Jesus found it suitable to invite just three. Three of the twelve got to go up on the mountain to pray. He had already determined some eight days earlier uh, which of the twelve were going to be the ones that would accompany him and get a glimpse of the, uh, of the kingdom. 
Not everybody had to be present. Not everyone had to be there and see this in order to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus also didn't provide everyone identical treatment. He wasn't everybody's best friend. In his humanity, he had a certain number of waking hours, a lot like us, and his time was limited. Probably much like you folks, in his humanity, he had three or four close friends. He extended apostleship to 12, about the size of our men's or our ladies' study group. He had a few others he routinely visited, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Beyond that, he preached the kingdom of God broadly to large groups, in a large group setting. Out of this small circle, though, God found it pleasing in His sight to send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to to begin a movement, a religious movement that the world had never seen before. One that would magnify the glory of God's Son. Started very small. On the day of Pentecost, there were probably 120 believers. A small gathering, less than what we would normally see here on a Sunday. They were continually devoted to prayer. Not for a hangnail, not for a sore toe, but that God's Son, Jesus Christ, would receive glory. Then we know on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit filled that place because it's God's desire that His Son be glorified. That's God's desire. That, that believers from every tongue, every tribe, every nation will come to receive Christ as Lord and that He will be glorified. He took, that is, Jesus took these three disciples to see a a premature glimpse of the kingdom of God, of the second coming of Christ. And this is a revelation of the glory that will ultimately be revealed to the whole world. The whole world will see His glory. So in verse 29, if you look with me, it says that while Jesus was praying, the appearance of His face became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. We can't be certain what the whole conversation was about, but I suspect that Moses and Elijah were sent by the Father to encourage his son to press on toward Jerusalem when nobody else on earth would. Nobody else was getting on that bandwagon. The denial and and self-preservation, or denial of self-preservation, the marching on the road to Jerusalem, the willing to die for self and die for others by enduring a cross, was a very lonely path. A very lonely path. As we've already seen, the disciples, at least until this point, they were serving better as an anchor against God's will than they were a sail in Christ's wind towards Jerusalem. Um, They're still focused on self-preservation. Eight days earlier, Jesus told them that he was going to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer at the hands of godless men and then die. And then he calls his followers to take up their own crosses after he announces that as well. And we'll see in a few moments that Peter's still trying to find a way to wiggle out of this. 
In last week's passage, folks, when we studied last week, if you were inspired to take up your cross, to bear your own cross by denying self and serving Christ and His church, you can be fairly confident that's not going to gain you a real round of applause, a huge round of applause on that one. More often, when you divulge to others that that you've chosen to bear your cross, that you're going to deny yourself, that you're going to pour your life into the cause for Christ, more often, you're going to find that people will discourage you. I just want you to know that, in case anyone had been moved last week, and this week you're wondering, is this still for real? Is this still uh, the cause for my life? Because, it, because if you're deciding, folks, to sacrifice your life, your time, your future, your finances, uh, for the sake of building Christ's church, and you tell that to others who haven't made that decision, where does that leave them? Where does that leave them? Very often it exposes their own desire to do the opposite of what Jesus said and preserve this life. That's why for those who take the road less traveled, there's normally uh, a lot of resistance felt, sometimes even by close friends and family members. I suspect in verse 30, as Moses and Elijah were discussing with Jesus his departure, his road to Jerusalem, that they were uh, encouraging him to continue on to that path. Drive on even though the crowds that are following you, we know by this time, are dwindling. I'm sure that that played into the disciples as well. You think about it, and people are already defecting from Christ as we've studied in the past. They're already leaving him after he fed the 5,000. And now there's a mass exodus of people leaving the movement. And, and he's, Jesus now asking people to come and die with him. Think of emotionally how that would uh, fall on you. We aren't given the full content of the discussion. It's not really that essential to the passage. But what is important is what the three saw when they awoke from having fallen asleep. This group's pretty good at that too. They, they fall asleep. Kind of like people in church sometimes, they kind of fall. That's probably about me though. But in verse 32, folks, when they awoke, we're told they saw His glory and the two men standing with him they they beheld christ's glory jesus is is permitting them now to see his glory and and think about why why now he's just asked them to deny themselves to give up their lives to follow him demanding that they even be willing to die as he's going to die for the sake of his kingdom and for his church i think it'd be good maybe to bring in something that's a that's a little bit of an encouragement, something that they can, they can see to help them follow him on this path. They had fallen asleep. They see his glory. Just as Moses asked God in Exodus 34, verse 18, he, he told God, show me your glory. If you remember, God put Moses in the cleft of the rock as he shielded him with his hand and then passed on by and then Moses was permitted them to see the back of the train of God's glory. We know the Bible says afterwards that after Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone. 
His face glowed because he had stood in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And Moses, he, he was merely a reflection of God's glory. Just a reflection. That's probably why as Moses and Elijah came, they too appeared, it says, in glory. They appeared in glory. They just come from standing in the presence of God the Father, and now they stand before the God the Son. They're in the presence of God, so they appear in glory. But when Luke describes the appearance of Jesus, it is pronounced as His glory. The glory belongs to Him. Jesus is emitting glory. Uh, for, for the glory of God is now radiating outwardly from Christ. What did this glory look like, you might ask? Well, verse 29 tells us, it says that His face became different and His clothing became white and gleaming. Mark 9 verse 2 tells us, His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. What do you think the point is there? This didn't originate from earth, right? Matthew writes, His face shone like the sun and His garments became white as light. The Greek word here that Luke uses that we translate gleaming, or, or your translation might say glistening or dazzling, uh, that term was in Jesus' day used to describe flashes of lightning, folks. That's His clothing. The glory was emitting from Him. Uh, the point made is that Jesus, He's not a reflection of God's glory. He's not a reflection of God's light. He is God's light. Jesus said three times in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world, right? And in John 12, verse 35, Jesus says, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. But while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus is not just a reflection of God's glory as Moses was. As God's Son, He's the source of God's glory. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that God the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus' face didn't, didn't shine like the sun and his clothes didn't glisten or glimmer like lightning because God the Father had directed just a spotlight on him. Like as we see on a stage, that wasn't it. No, his appearance changed because Christ's divine nature was radiating outwardly from Him. Christ was revealing to Peter, James, and John through His divine nature that, that God was manifest in human flesh, folks. The glory radiated out from Him. Has everyone here heard of the Shroud of Turin? 
I mentioned it a few years back, but in case you're new, the Shroud of Turin, that's a first century burial cloth. It's believed by many scholars to have been the linens that are written about in John chapter 20, the linens of Christ himself that he was wrapped in for burial. It's a long piece of fabric that was laid underneath the body beginning at the feet, and then it was wrapped over top of the head and brought back across the top of the body again to join once again at the feet. So the traditional burial cloth, it's twice the length of a human man is what I want you to understand. Uh, This first photo that you're looking at here shows the whole length of this burial cloth from the feet to the head to the feet. It's a truly amazing artifact. The second photo, as you look in between there on that image, it's, it's just a um, picture of this shroud from the front of the body. And this third photo, I'd like you to see, it is a digitally processed photo of the image of the face. Now, you can find all kinds of information online about this, folks. You can go look it up yourselves. Um, I won't invest much time in it. Some sources insist that it is a hoax. Many Christian scientists and theologians who've been allowed to examine uh, with, with, with great detail, uh, with, with many different types of uh, technology, uh, many theologians Suspect the shroud is genuine. The actual burial cloth of Christ. And because of the proven character of some of those men, I even know one of the men who got to examine this cloth. I know him personally. Because of his character, I too suspect this cloth likely is the one used to wrap the body of our Lord for burial. Perhaps one of the most compelling evidences is how the image was transferred to the cloth, folks. That, that image that you see there, it, it, it's not caused by a decay of tissue. Science to this day is completely unable to explain how the image of this man was transferred onto this fabric through what seems to have been some kind of process of radiation. Much like an x-ray would leave. I was at the dentist here this past week. Horrible, horrible experience. And as you know, they focus the x-ray from the outside in on your teeth to take the photo, right? That's a type of impression that was left upon this cloth cloth, the thing they can't figure out is, is why this image was burned from the inside out. Some sort of source of power burned this image from the inside out to the cloth. Scientists can't figure out how it happened. I'm pretty confident how that image got there. It was the emitting of Christ's glory as God raised him from the dead. Romans 6, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, 
so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Where did the power come from? 2 Corinthians 13.4 He was crucified because of weakness, yet He lives because of the power of God. That was the source of the power. Even as Christ was raised from the dead in His burial cloth, He was radiating His glory. The transfiguration is Jesus unveiling His glory to Peter and James and John. And of course we know Peter who had just confessed Him days earlier as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Listen to this description of this event written by the late J. Dwight Pentecost. Quote, It was necessary that Christ's glory be veiled when He came into the world. Christ's glory was not surrendered at the time of the Incarnation, but was veiled, lest the people whom He had come to redeem should be consumed by its brightness. God's purpose was to dwell in the midst of His people, Israel, and to reveal His presence among them by letting the light of His glory shine on them. But Israel could not behold the unveiled glory of God. Therefore, in revealing the plans for the tabernacle to Moses, God instructed him to erect a curtain between the Holy of Holies where God purposed to dwell and His people. That veil was not so much designed to teach Israel that they were unworthy to enter the presence of God, which in truth it did, as much to protect Israel from being consumed by the brightness of God's glory. The veil then was a gracious provision by a holy God to make it possible for Him to dwell in the midst of an unholy people. He continues saying, The writer to the Hebrews said that the body of Jesus Christ was to Him what the veil was in the tabernacle. Quote, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened to us through the curtain that is his body. Hebrews 10, 19-20. Pentecost then concludes, Christ's glory then was not surrendered at the incarnation. Instead, it was veiled so that the Holy One might dwell among unholy people. The transfiguration then was a re- revelation of the essential glory that belongs to Christ and one day will be revealed to the world. Unquote. Good stuff. Good stuff. Knowing the transfiguration was, was to display the glory of Christ, why then the appearance of Moses and Elijah? Why did the apostles need to see them? I mean, couldn't Jesus have appeared on the mountain alone? Just displayed His glory alone? It's likely that Moses symbolically represented the giving of the law, uh, while Elijah signifies the testimony given through the prophets. Both the law and the prophets functioned to point Israel toward Christ. Even as John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah, directed Israel towards the Messiah. And as Philip told Nathaniel in John 1 verse 45, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. 
law and the prophets. The law and the prophets pointed to Christ. This exposes the error made by Peter in verse 33. And as these, meaning Moses and Elijah, as these were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And it reads, not realizing what he was saying. You know, by suggesting that three tabernacles be built, being built, not realizing what he was saying, uh, through that he made three errors. The first would be that the building of three tabernacles would propose a permanency for Moses and Elijah, or Moses and the prophets, in an immediate establishment of Christ's kingdom, that they would stay. You get it? You build a tabernacle for them that they would stay. It seems that Peter was trying to prevent Moses and Elijah from departing, from leaving. Let's build a tabernacle for you. It's good that we're all here. Let's just drop this whole idea of a cross. The kingdom can be here and now, um, can be established without a cross, not realizing what he was saying. He wanted the kingdom now without going through the cross. Second, by suggesting three tabernacles, Peter was placing Jesus on par with Moses and the prophets. No, Moses and Elijah are just men. Just men. Uh, They don't get their own tabernacles. God declares, I will not share my glory with another. And third, it seems to be that Moses and Elijah are symbolically pointing the disciples towards Jesus and now are prepared to depart. The scene offers a vision, a vision of fulfillment in Christ. In John 5, verse 39, Jesus rebuked the Jews, saying, You search the Scriptures, that would be the Law and the Prophets, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me, and you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. Where is life found? In the light. Moses and the Prophets are only profitable... In pointing to the one who actually saves, Christ. Moses can't save you. Elijah can't save you. Your pastor can't save you. Your mother can't save you. No one else can save you unless they direct you to the light. Point you to the light. The righteousness of the law cannot save you. The reverence of of men who were prophets, that can't save you. We have to entirely focus on the sufficiency of Christ to save. It appears Peter was once again trying to find a way to circumvent the suffering of the cross. As he did earlier, and Jesus announced that he was going to suffer at the hands of godless men, Peter said, by no means, Lord. By no means. This will never happen to you. Jesus rebuked him, you remember? Peter was trying still to find a way to circumvent. Is there any way the kingdom, is there any way that it can come without Jesus hanging on the cross? No. 
There is no other way. In verse 34, while Peter was saying this, that he was suggesting the tabernacles and, and to set this up as he was seeing it on the mountain, notice the timing here. As Peter was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of heaven saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. Verse 36, When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found then all alone. It's almost like Peter is saying, Let's build these tabernacles, and this is a good thing that we're here, Lord. Why don't we just, oh, a cloud. Someone steps in and says, Well, let me just redirect this conversation. Let's redirect it to where it needs to be. This is my son, my chosen one. You listen to him. Enough talking. I think all of us would be benefited more, including myself. We do a little less talking and a little more listening to what the Word has to say about Christ. In verse 36, when the voice had spoken, Jesus, he was alone. Moses and Elijah had departed. All three accounts of the transfiguration. You find it in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. They end with Jesus standing alone. He stands alone. He is the center of the disciples' attention now on the mountain. Stop speaking and start listening. Jesus has already given his orders. I'm going to Jerusalem. Take up your cross, follow me. God says, listen to him. Quit arguing with the path that Christ has for himself and for you. He he just told us to embrace our own cross. God says, just quit arguing with it. Quit delaying and take up your cross. Listen to my son who just said to you, by the way, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. I think we better listen. We better listen. And as we do, I'm going to ask now the men to come forward to serve our Lord's Supper. There's a, there's a silver lining to all of this. God's grace always lines everything. Uh, For those who are going to follow Christ as his disciples, who are going to forsake their worldly lives and and come after him and deny themselves, um, will there be suffering? Absolutely. There will be suffering. Uh, Every Christian will endure some level uh, of loss for their testimony to Christ. Um, Will we have to forsake our worldly lives? Absolutely. We have to. We aren't given any choice in that. Uh, Will we have to face death? It's a possibility. It's a possibility. But there's nothing to fear. As Christ was calling His disciples, and Peter and James and John and the other nine and the others following Him, there's nothing to fear because Christ has already revealed His glory. He's already now revealed it to them and to us, as Peter said in our Scripture reading earlier. He said, We did not follow cleverly devised tales. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He received honor and glory from the Father. There's nothing to fear, folks. And this is just a little glimpse into the kingdom 
Just a little glimpse of what we will see when Jesus comes again. But until he does, he instituted the Lord's Supper as a meal of remembrance. Each time we partake in the bread and the cup, we recall how Christ's path took him to the cross in Jerusalem, how he died for our sins, how he rose from the dead. So when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my soul, sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If you believe Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead in glory, we invite you to join us in this memorial. And during the distribution, we supply a moment of prayer, repentance, of reflection, even a rekindling of our souls for Christ.